0: You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast. A call for help list to improve safety for supervised general practitioners. Our guests are Dr. Jared Ingham and Dr. Katie Plasto. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respects to their elders, past, present and their families.
1: It is a great pleasure tonight to introduce a couple of speakers, a couple of academics who will be presenting on a topic that's very dear to our role as GP supervisors around patient safety and registrar's calling for help. So I'm really looking forward to the session tonight. My name's Simon Morgan. I'm a GP and a medical educator, and certainly since the lockdown, I have been doing quite a lot of work with GPSA, which has been an enjoyable part of my job. So I'm the facilitator for tonight and we'll be sitting in the background. Jared and Katie have provided these learning objectives for tonight. And I think this is about as core as it gets to our role as supervisors. So this new call for help list provides instructions for registrars and supervised doctors about when to call for help, how to use that to monitor registrar in terms of progress and safety and to outline options to improve safety in early GP training, a pretty important topic. And so I shall allow the presenters to introduce themselves. Jared and Katie, take it
2: away. I am a recently fellow GP in Melbourne and a medical educator at MCCC and have a background in tertiary teaching and research into teaching and learning prior to medicine.
3: And I'm Jared Ingham. I'm a GP in Dalesford. I've actually come up to my surgery because that's where the good internet is, in central Victoria and also on the Jar, Jar Jar Wurrung land. And Katie and I were fortunate enough to get an education research grant. I think it was last year, Katie, it seems a long time ago already. And part of a research team that included the two of us and Rebecca Kippen from Monash University and Nikki White from MCCC. And sorry, for those of you who don't know, MCCC, Murray City, Country, Coast GP Training is the regional training organisation for the western half of Melbourne and the western and northern part of the state of Victoria. And so we're going to take you through some research that we did and the outcomes of that research. A call for help list, which is something which we developed through this research, but it was actually only one part of the research which we did. And the research was all started from this very seemingly quite simple statement, which sits in the RACGP training program guideline, which says that registrars should only manage patients that they are competent to manage. And that's the standard for GP training. But interesting, that's an outcome standard. So the college GPs a few years ago said, we won't tell you how to do will just tell you what you're supposed to achieve. But it's actually quite challenging when you think they haven't actually said how hey, you're going to achieve it. So that made me wonder how people were achieving this standard. And also Simon, the facilitator tonight, along with me in 2013, published an article on the use of random case analysis as a mechanism of going through your registrar's notes and looking to find out about how they're going. And when we did some research on that, we did some research with supervisors, we trained them how to use random case analysis, and then we went back and asked them six weeks later how that was going. And mostly we were trying to find out about how good was random case analysis, and it's very good. But one of the side findings of it, which ended up probably being the most significant finding, is that we just by chance really asked them, you know, did you find any safety issues? And 30% of the supervisors, when we asked six weeks later, said there were safety issues in the notes that I looked at. And 16% of them actually said there was so significant that I actually had to contact patients. Now that's not proof that registrars are seeing patients that they're not competent to manage, but it certainly pricks up your ears and start to wonder. It's not proof because maybe you look at my notes over six weeks and 30% of supervisors might find problems with my notes. So it's not proof, but it certainly makes you wonder. And then the other part which prompted the international research is, well, you know, so how are we like other countries? Well, Australia is quite different from other countries because our registrars generally start seeing patients without routine oversight of all consultations much earlier than they do in other countries. In most other countries, the registrars are starting like they used to do for us, those of us who had the pg program. They start with every consultation being reviewed routinely, it's expected. They go for some period of time before they switch to the common scenario in Australia where it's really up the registrar to call for help. And also when you look at it, our system is different in that the registrars are paid by the practice and they're paid, a bit, most, about 80% of registrars are on percentage payment. And there's a financial incentive potential for a registrar to see more patients at the expense of their educational needs. The registrar earns more money, the practice earns more money if the registrar sees more patients rather than having education. And the other thing we know is that our AGPT program, that's the General Practice Training Program of Australia, is designed in part to deliver rural workforce. There's a requirement that 50% of GP training must happen in rural areas, and that's not the same in other countries. And we do know from other parts of our research that if the practice in a rural area is performing poorly, the training organisation can't afford to lose those practices, so they maybe sometimes hang on to practices that they shouldn't. And the other thing which we wonder about the quality of supervision is that our supervisors in Australia don't receive the same amount of training as supervisors in other countries. It's quite stunning to think that the average requirement for an Australian supervisor is six hours per year, whereas in other countries it's 50 hours per year. You might all be horrified by that amount, but that's actually what happens. So, the first phase, having been prompted by looking at the literature and thinking about those things, the first phase of research, we said, Well, what is actually happening in Australia? So, we set about interviewing all the lead medical educators, that's the people who are in charge of the regional training organisations, the nine regional training organisations around Australia, and we did a qualitative analysis of that. And the things which we found is when we asked medical educators, Are registrars only seeing patients they're competent to manage? You know, are you making sure that they said, well, we are actually not responsible for that. We can design all the checks and things which we like and we can tell supervisors how to do it. But ultimately, it's the training practices and the supervisors who have to do that. And at the same time that they said they thought that training was basically generally safe, but they handed that responsibility over to the practices But they also said, look, we've got a few practices we're worried about. Although the majority of practices are good, there are a few that aren't so good and we have trouble getting that on record, removing them or improving them. The other thing we looked at high risk activities. So, you know, things where a registrar, we want to be absolutely sure the registrar is competent to manage this and not managing it on their own. When you look around the nine regional training organizations, it's all managed quite differently. Some run a higher risk checklist, some have none. Some have it buried deep in the supervisor handbook, and some have it that the registrar holds it on the webpage. But it's variable amongst the regional training organizations. And I suppose the important point about this is that no regional training organisation actually checks that any safety check is being used, or even those that have one don't check that it's been completed by the registrar and by the practice. And in essence, regional training organisations, although there's this standard that the college is asking them to achieve to make sure that registrars are only seeing patients they're competent to manage, they don't actually check whether that's happening. And it led to the first paper which came out of this research, which is called "Tell Me If There's a Problem," because when you look at it, there's sort of almost Three levels it's almost a regulatory oversight issue I suppose you think in other areas of our society you know we're currently hearing in terms of aged care uh, regulatory oversight you can create all these rules but if people aren't ensuring that they're being followed or the desired outcome is being achieved it's really a failure of regulatory oversight. And this can potentially be happening at three levels in our training program. You've got the, is the supervisor you know, saying to the registrar, look, I want you to call me if there's any problem, but not actually checking in to see that they are. And the registrar having all questions and not calling. And the same thing, as I mentioned, is the training organization checking that the supervisor is ensuring that the registrar is only managing patients that they're safe to? And similarly, is the college really checking that the regional training organization is delivering what it's setting out to do? So this is the sort of background to the call for help list. And I suppose the next thing, if you think about it, we're asking Katie to speak to the research that relates to the registrar's perspective or what it's like for the registrar
2: Yeah, so if we know that registrars might not be asking for or receiving help when they should, from the registrar's perspective, what do we know about this? So we have an idea of how frequently registrars are calling supervisors at certain time points in their training from the recent project. And analysis by the researchers there, including yourself, Simon, reported that in mid-GPT1, So about 12 weeks into training, registrars were calling for help in 11% of consultations and then that reduced to about 5% in term two and a further reduction to calling in 1.2% of consultations by midterm four. Supervisors were more likely to be asked for help in consultations involving skin, musculoskeletal and more complex presentations and for management rather than diagnostic questions. And we don't know the exact frequency that registrars are calling their supervisors for help in those first 12 weeks of GPT-1 training, but it is likely to be more. And then in terms of experience prior to GP training... Susan Wern and others have argued that changes in hospital practice, including reduced hours of work, increased specialisation within hospitals, and shorter admission times, have also resulted in less clinical experience, less opportunity for clinical decision making, and even less of an educational experience for junior doctors who then may enter general practice into an environment that's becoming increasingly complex where they're managing issues that they're less likely than in previous years to have encountered in the hospital setting with less oversight than in the hospital. And then we also know from other research in the Australian general practice training context that help seeking by registrars is a complex decision where registrars weigh up the need for help with the social risks of appearing less competent and of losing face in front of their supervisor as well as in front of patients. And although we tend to feel that we're less hierarchical in general practice, this can paradoxically make it harder for registrars to know who to call. And even factors such as the physical distance of the supervisor's room from the registrar plays into that decision of whether to call or or not.
3: A Dutch study where they looked at what happens in the registrar's perspective when they have every encounter, And really, you can see they come across something and they might be in a state of confidence about what to do. They might be near confidence. They might be in doubt. And I love this other one, which is they might be being clueless. And I think you're obviously hoping that a registrar is going to be calling for help when they're clueless or in doubt, and that's quite important. But also we want to be sure that the registrar may be very confident about some things, but we know in general practice there are some things which are high risk, even though they might be very confident. And of course, we're also very worried about someone who's overconfident in their ability and identifying that. More of that later. In a very hot-off-the-press publication from, again, those sort of dynamic duo of uh, James Brown and Susan Wern, they published a chapter on supervision in general practice setting, which I certainly encourage you to read. But James, when you questioned, and I've asked him recently, he said, what's the most important thing about supervisors? He says, well, it's supervisors should be approachable and available. That, at the core of it, is what your role is to be. He thinks that most other things will work themselves out if you're approachable and available. So do you provide your registrar with a checklist of circumstances explaining when they should call for help? And you might use our list, the call for help list, which is only just published, or use an RACGP checklist, one provided by your RTO. You might be using a checklist that you developed in your own practice, or you might say, no, I'd like to use one, or no, I don't actually think that's necessary at all. I think this is um, a bit of overkill. So most of you are not using one. 50% are not using one, but would like to use one. Well, that's good. We're glad we've got the attention of those for the rest of it. And others are using a checklist. Only 7% don't think it's necessary. And the rest of you are either not using one, but would like to use one, or are already using one from your RTO or something you develop in your practice or an RSCGP checklist. Katie, so if you're not using a checklist, let's talk a bit further.
2: As Jared has already mentioned, some but not all of Australian RTOs use safety checklists to reduce these kind of risks. Those that are currently used are based on this RACGP standards list of high risk areas, which you can see are quite broadly defined and can be difficult to practically implement. So, for example, telling your registrar to call you for a diagnosis of malignancies is pretty hard on them. They're not always going to know that at presentation, so they can't call you saying, oh, I've got a malignancy here assessment of trauma or of children is easier to recognise but do you as supervisors really want to be called for every child and all trauma presentations or do you want to be called for every intramuscular injection for example or when a registrar's planning to prescribe an inappropriate medication obviously that's more likely to be recognised after the fact like the diagnosis of malignancy so you can see there's some issues with the list
1: Katie just to say that this has been the kind of gold standard that we have had to use you know really how useful is it to say I would like you to when there's a diagnosis of malignancy it's such a nebulous unhelpful list with respect to the college that we've actually had to use for so long so that's why the work you've done has clarified this area so much for me at least
3: yeah I think particularly the ones like the one where British tried to call me for intramuscular injections or venipuncture I don't think so One of the things we were doing the research, we tried to find out where this original list came from and no one really knows.
2: Yeah, so that's the list that we set out to try and replace or improve in phase two of our research. So we did this initially by asking focus groups in which circumstances in early GP training should a registrar call their supervisor for help. So we had an initial focus on safety and particularly on registrars, what might be unlikely to call. We had seven focus groups, two groups of registrars, four groups of supervisors in Victoria and Tasmania and one group of experts who were medical educators with supervisor experience, so 75 participants in total. And we used an action research model to co-design our list with the participants with iterative cycles, refining the list in between each group.
3: You said all those magic words, to make it sound like we knew what we were doing, Katie, that's good.
2: So we anticipated a safety checklist looking at particularly when registrars weren't likely to know when to call. What was actually produced was not just a safety list but a call for help list with 80 items that should trigger a call for supervision. This was longer than we anticipated but there was real reluctance for any items to be removed by participants. The final call for help list, I'll break it down a little bit. So this list is intended to indicate to a registrar when they should call for help when they are under Level 3 supervision, so the level where they determine when to call. Some items are separated out into uncertainty flags, which are broad indicators of registrar uncertainty not linked to a particular scenario. And then the other items in the list evolved into specific clinical scenarios and general circumstances of when a registrar should call for help. For each of those, we found there were three particular justifications for inclusion on the list. Some of the items made the list because they're high risk for all GPs, others because they're new problems that won't have been encountered in hospital and some that will have been encountered in hospital, but because of a different assessment or management in general practice, they're termed different contexts. The uncertainty flags that I mentioned, so these are the broad triggers to prompt calling, such as when a registrar is considering sending any patient to ED or prescribing an unfamiliar medication. Supervisors weren't very keen for having the heart sync patients on the list, but registrars rated this item very highly, so...
3: Everything else on the list very much got equal rates from supervisors and registrars, but the having heart sick patients, the registrars wanted to have that as an uncertainty flag, but the supervisors didn't.
2: The general circumstances section of the list includes new or challenging situations such as breaking bad news, procedures being done for the first time in the clinic, nursing home visits, and then professional or legal scenarios like driving assessments. Then the largest part of the list were the clinical problems falling under clinical headings such as paediatrics, mental health and emergency presentations. Just to go into that a little bit more, to give some examples of those reasons for inclusion, new problems are things like cervical screening and S8 prescribing that are new to general practice. Things like fractures and iron deficiency are likely to have been encountered during hospital training, but they're managed or assessed differently in the context of general practice. And the high risk circumstances are those presentations or issues such as child protection that will always be high risk and that even um, that were defined as something where even an experienced GP might consider discussing this with a colleague. How it all fits together, the uncertainty flags not linked to a scenario separated out, the general circumstances, the specific clinical scenarios and the three reasons for inclusion on the list new to general practice, different context or high risk for all.
3: There is actually the published paper. This paper was published in the Australian Journal of General Practice at least in amongst
1: COVID, yes. So, Jared, a few comments that have come through, which I think might be good to address at this point. The first, I guess, is it is a long list, and somebody has said, look, it made me feel a bit anxious that I'd forget something on such a long list. How do we manage this pretty long list of conditions and circumstances? Initially, we felt
3: like we needed to apologise all the time for the long list, but Katie and I have now sort of come to the opinion we've actually made it pretty short when you consider what's out there, what you see in general practice. And we repeatedly went to the supervisors and registrars and they were in the focus groups and all say, yeah, gee, we're getting a big list now. And we'd say, well, which one of those do you want to drop off? And, oh, no, no. We thought we were just going to get a safety checklist. Just give us the things we think are registered. But I one of the other things on the list, and I think that speaks to the way general practice training is in Australia because we do start at this level where registrars are seeing very commonly seeing patients and being left to their own determination of whether they should call for help, that people wanted more than a safety checklist. They wanted that call for help checklist. As Katie's going to speak to this when we get to the implementation part, where it's still sort of a bit up for debate about how this will be used in practice. So far, mostly just I've given it with my registrar and discussed it with my registrar and we've gone through it. The registrars have generally found it very helpful to help them identify the things. You are expecting me to call for that. They felt empowered to call. They would call me and say, hey, I've come across something which is on the list. And they felt better. That sort of approachable and available was helped by the list. But I think Katie can speak to a bit more to that in implementation. Katie, anything you wanted to say about the size of the list?
2: I think you've covered it all. I think I'll reflect on those in a moment when we talk about the implementation. The implementation
3: yeah. uh, when we looked elsewhere, there was, in the US, there was a checklist of 76 entrustable professional activities that they were seeing needed help. So it was relatively similar to ones elsewhere. It also speaks to the broad nature of our discipline, general practice much smaller lists in other disciplines, I think. Anyway, Katie.
2: Absolutely. So on implementation, we also asked the focus group participants about their ideas on implementation of the list. And based on that, it's anticipated that the registrar would hold the list and call their supervisor for each item until the supervisor deems this unnecessary for each item. And some of those things might drop off the list fairly early and others might stay on for longer and then removal of the items occur either as supervision or teaching identifies that readiness for independent practice. We anticipate that the list can also be modified at the start of each term with consideration of that particular registrar's prior experience and also taking into account the practice context. So for some practices with a particular patient population or a special interest, they may even feel that a small number of items might need to be added to the list. And then it's likely that many items in particularly some of those uncertainty flags and the high risk for all circumstances would remain on the list through GPT-1 and beyond. But the registrars and supervisors felt that the list would also be helpful in generating teaching topics. And it might be that through teaching sessions, some of the items are removed from the list as well. So that 80 items might come down throughout the term. And I think it's also important to mention that supervisors felt that the list would be best used as an adjunct or a tool for safer supervision rather than an additional assessment task
3: supervisors were not at all keen on being asked to have another thing which they have to fill in and check, but they were very keen on using the list. As we were running this in the focus groups, even when it was only half done, people were saying, oh, can I take that what we've done so far with me because I think I can use it now.
2: And there's another good point to just come up, that the list is not exhaustive, indicative only, yeah, it's a guide.
3: For example, we weren't asking those working in, say, an Aboriginal medical service. There might be different things which would form on a list in that sort of context, you know, and practices that have special interests, as you've said. Although we said it could be modified, we did caution against removing things from the list, particularly those which are high risk or where registrar says, well, I've done that at hospital. Is it different in general practice? Do you need to have a discussion before something's removed? Yeah. Can we add some? Yeah, you can definitely add any things that you want to add to the list. You can add as many as you want. That's what we got to through a research process. We did sort of achieve saturation and had to the point where we weren't getting significantly new items added in, but it's not to say that there aren't other things which could be added on.
2: And I think there's items on the list like the first time you perform a new procedure at the clinic that you want to be called for, but once that's been done, it won't stay on the list for that term. So we're interested in your ideas on the utility of the list and how you might implement it in your practice.
3: Saying so going through the list of the training sets. So I think going through the list at the very early time and then maybe through the term, you know, three or six months in. Question there from Tally Barrett to say consolidate to one list with the list from the RTO. The list from the RTO generally are fairly much the older ACGP list with a few things added
2: on. Just with that question on no list would have prevented the PEDS registrar trying multiple times in that example to get the arterial sample, I think with my experience as a registrar not very far behind me, I think having a list that made me feel able to call and gives that permission to call for things that you're uncertain about would hopefully reduce some of those risks. Can't prevent everything.
3: No, and being mindful that, you know, it is about being approachable and available. You have a list and you're a frightening person to encounter when the phone call comes. They're going to ignore the list.
1: I'm interested in developing a list which I understand your motivations around, patient safety, education and training, supporting the registrar and supervisor. Was there any concern by yourselves and perhaps the supervisors in the project around it being used in the wrong way? And that might be around, as you talked about, assessment by the RTOs great we've got something that we can use in a almost a summative way or there was mention of a list for the lawyers which is yeah. i guess the next rung up so was that considered in yeah the, in, it was in
3: the before we speak about the lawyer side of things we were interested right at the start we had you know whether it would be a checklist or a thing called an entrustable professional activity those of you in south australia and i think in west australia are becoming aware of that which would not only be where a supervisor would have to sign off and say, I can entrust my registrar to do that independently. Generally, the registrars and the supervisors weren't so keen on having that responsibility and feeling that they had to use it to that level. We had that one group we said was medical educators and they could see that they were particularly keen on using it as an assessment task. We thought that if it was to be used in this assessment task, rather than have all 80 items to be ticked off, that, because if we believe in a thing called programmatic assessment, which is you don't need to assess everything, you just need to assess lots of little small things, you could develop a few of those item numbers, particularly those which you identified as very important to be dealt with into programmatic assessment. So there was this tension between the educators wanting it as an assessment tool because they don't feel they've got enough nitty-gritty assessment like this would be, and the supervisor saying, look, we've already got enough work, as it is, this is to create a burden for us. So that was how we resolved the tension. If I speak to the lawyer question, well, of course, the list or no list, the reality is that you as a supervisor are responsible for your registrar's patients. I suppose whether that deflects the blame over to say the registrar should have called me and didn't, I'm afraid that I'm a bush lawyer, but I don't reckon that will wash. The presence of the list itself, I don't think, may go any more or less responsible than you already are.
2: Someone's made a comment as well that the list would perhaps empower the trainee to call. And I think that's something that would have enabled me to call supervisors more easily as a registrar, but also just having been aware of some of those unknown unknowns, particularly in those very early weeks of GPT one
3: I certainly was using it this year, but it sort of became a bit strange when supervision all became a bit strange when COVID came into play. of course. So we needed to develop a telehealth call for help checklist as well. I'm gonna shift for a little bit from where we've been looking, which is at the call for helpless, which of course is the core of this presentation, but just we're seeing this in the context of how you start out your registrar at the start of practice. I've mentioned already that we're quite different from other countries. So I'm going to ask this question. When does your registrar first start seeing patients on their own? You know, do they have just a couple of days? Do you observe them consulting? Do they have two weeks of reviewing all consultations or a month of reviewing all consultations or something else? How else you, when a registrar is safe to see what we call level three supervision, which is a registrar will call for you when they determine that it's necessary rather than you. What's your usual practice in terms of how you start your registrars off? Are they starting off very quickly, moving, progressing to this level three supervision? I suppose I'm talking mostly about GPT-1 registrars, not to say that that couldn't also apply to GPT-3. We've had Laura saying orientation plus watching for one session. They watch you for a session and you watch them for a session. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's true, Taras, as you say, it depends on the stage of registrar training. Peter Stevens. Peter, a lot of this research has been inspired, to be honest, by Peter, as I know, is legendary supervisor from Hayward and Gippsland. And he pretty much treats everyone the same. You're a medical student, you're a PGPPP, you're a GPT-1 or GPT-2. He keeps observing every single practitioner, way of consulting with them, checking how they're going until he's happy. The majority, so 45% would do it after an initial period of orientation. So in other words, after observing them with several patients, that's probably only gonna be a few days, isn't it? So. You see the majority, which is our understanding, at least two-thirds of practices out there would be having their registrars seeing patients at that level three supervision where it's up to them to determine when they would call for help. Very few have longer periods. So let's just talk about that a little bit further. You may be aware that if you're an international medical graduate and you're going into practice not in the AGPT. APRA devised a levels of supervision, which Katie and myself and our research team developed further. They described there's four levels of supervision. Level one, which is every patient is checked by the supervisor before the patient leaves the building. That's level one supervision. And we've divided that up into, it might be there, you sit there for the whole consultation where you're actually sitting and observing, i call that 1A, 1B would be typically a wave consultation where you would come in at the end and 1C where perhaps the registrar or the doctor being supervised would just call you at the end of the consultation. Level Level two is where the patient can leave the facility but all the notes are checked and so there's a review of every single case or maybe it gets to level 2B where a selection of notes are reviewed very frequently at the end of the day or at the end of each clinical session to be sure that things are safe. Level three is what we're talking about, which is where most registrars start out, which is it's up to the registrar to determine when they call for help. And we're suggesting that at this level, this is where our call for help list would be appropriate. And level four, for what it's worth, which is not in there, is when the registrar is effectively functioning independently and is not expected to call you for help, functioning effectively like a colleague. I became quite interested in having talked about this, and I'd come to the decision myself personally that I've been perhaps a bit inspired by Peter Stevens. Maybe couldn't go quite as far as Peter and said, look, I've got to start walking the talk and decided that I'd better ensure that all my registrars would start at a period of level one supervision. And we chose two weeks, which was not really too big a hurdle. And so for the first two weeks, we decided our registrar, the first day or so we sat in, and then after that, the registrar would call us in at the end of every consultation. We have a number of supervisors in my practice where I am now, and we managed to share that because it is a little bit of a burden to do at the start. And we did that for the first two weeks. What I found was I felt so much more confident about that registrar at the end of those two weeks. I was more sure about their capability. The relationship between us was established. In terms of being approachable and available, we demonstrated that by wanting to design things that way. I've done this now for two years running, and we've had four registrars I've done this with, and one registrar was particularly anxious. In hindsight, I wonder if we hadn't have done it this way, she probably would have crashed and burned out of general practice and not continued. She felt incredibly supportive. For her, we actually continued doing level one supervision for longer than the two weeks, rather than just switching over to level three. So I'm wondering if anyone else doing anything similar, You're saying level one all the time. It is tiring at the start in terms of having that extra commitment, but you certainly lie a little bit straighter in bed at night and don't toss and turn about what's going on behind the door in the other room. I was also inspired early on, there was a supervisor when I was running education sessions in New South Wales who said she took home the notes of every patient that the registrar saw and just quickly read through the notes. So that was an hour of paper files days. But to open up the records of everyone, at least that would be a greater level of supervision. So it's something for you to think about. I appreciate it's a bit of a challenge. And one of the other research projects I'd like to do is to do a study into that and how it works and what are the outcomes for the supervisor and the registrar. So the other thing to point out is that I think it's important, and we've talked about the call for help list, I've talked about considering level one supervision. I think it's really important at the start of the term to get to know your registrar, and that's where the call for help list can be very useful. You sit down, you have a talk about it, you ask them about what they've done in the past, their strengths and weaknesses and learning needs. That's really a very important thing to do. And the other thing I'd say is you've seen there from the recent study done by Simon and others that we know that supervisors will be called at least a couple of times per session at 12 weeks in terms more than likely four or five times, you know, a couple of weeks in, you know, they'll be calling you for every second or third patient they see. If you don't cross off the time in your book, if you're trying to still do your same clinical load whilst meeting that extra demand, you're very soon not going to be approachable and available. Underneath, we are all unconsciously incompetent. You know, you don't know what you don't know. As Donald Rumsfeld once famously said, you check that your registrar is calling when they should be calling. And how do you check? Yeah, you do something called random case analysis or some other audit technique, such as you might look at the inbox audits or the, the pathology results. or you might look at all their referral letters. I think it's pretty important.
1: Random case analysis, which Jared and I, I think very well, very proudly now um, put on the map nearly seven or eight years ago, has really filled that medical education method gap. One of the really powerful tools to help identify your registrar's learning needs. This is the take-home messages that we'd
3: like you to have There's that consider closer supervision at the commencement of GP training. Think if you can be like Peter Stevens and provide that level one supervision, even for a bit longer than you currently do, ideally until you're happy that the registrar is competent to manage on their own. Then use this call for help list to indicate clearly when you expect the registrar to call for help and also to monitor safety throughout the term. And I think it's a strong tool which we're able to use to encourage calling, not necessarily to become a big hurdle for everyone to use. And finally, to use an audit technique such as random case analysis to monitor whether your registrar is calling when they should, to detect that unconscious incompetence. The paper which this presentation is based upon, if those want to go and read the original work, was published earlier this year in the Australian Journal for General Practice. We've got some time, I think, for some questions and discussions.
2: Jared, there's been a couple of comments about some people being the only supervisor in the practice, so perhaps not having as much time, and somebody else saying that February is a good time of year for that more intensive oversight, which was something that came up with some of our focus groups.
3: I think that did come up in our focus groups as saying that it was easier in February than in August when we're looking at closer supervision. I mean, really, to shift to closer supervision, I think if you can do it, it's good. We actually think that to do it, we need to get the evidence to prove that it's important, to prove that patients are more safely managed in that environment, that it actually ends up being better in the long run. As Simon's other published work has said, if registrars are uncertain, they order more tests, they do more referrals. It may actually be if supervisors were paid to provide level one supervision, like they were in PGPPP, which was very well liked by supervisors, Our impression wasn't it, Katie during the research. was Many people said, look, if I'm paid well enough to do it, I would be happy to do it. Not everyone could do it. And we also identified that perhaps not everyone can do it. Imagine if you had training where it started off where the practices that could provide that did that until people were able to progress onto a practice where they weren't able to be as closely supervised at the start. I remember in the focus group when we were in Tasmania, Katie, that one of the people saying, well, look, I was always happy to get the registrars from that other practice and had them for Triple I really knew that any issues had been ironed out and I was sure about that. So I appreciate that it's maybe a hurdle too far for a solo practitioner in many occasions, but with goodwill and funding, maybe it can be. And maybe it can be in February, but not in August. So don't take your registrar in August, take them in February.
1: I must say, Jared and Katie, that the really strong theme that emerged from your presentation and thinking about this is the role that a list like this can play to empower a registrar, to help them identify their own needs, to give them that sense of confidence in calling. That very powerful story you told, Jared about a registrar that potentially may have struggled significantly with anxiety in having kind of permission to say, oh, gosh, there's all these things I don't know, and I've got legitimacy to ring and contact my supervisor. There's a lot in that, I think, that must have been a very rewarding aspect of the work, not just develop this list, but think about how it can really reinforce the Supervisor Registrar Alliance and the educational experience. When we were writing the
3: paper, submitted it for publication, the editor came back to us and said, well, you've mentioned about how this might help the Registrar Supervisor Alliance and said, well, I want you to write a bit more on that. So we were privileged to be able to write a bit more about our thoughts, because I think it is about establishing that relationship between the Registrar and the Supervisor. And I hope that this will be a prompt for discussion.
1: The way I would like to see this working, both in the practice setting, but also at the RTO level, where potentially there's a slippery slope to starting to implement these as assessment tools, but you've talked strongly about the role of this just as a formative, supportive tool. There's lots and lots of strong wishes of thank you very much. This has been incredibly useful. I'll use the list tomorrow. Fantastic research. Well done. So I think I didn't expect anything other than this in terms of the topic content and also your experience in the field. So thank you so much, Katie and Jared, for presenting this really, really impressive work. And as I said at the outset, Just something that is so important. It's wonderful to see grassroots GPs doing this kind of research into the work we do every day and coming up with an outcome that is so useful. So thank you so much.
3: We have to say especially thank all the supervisors who are involved in the research. My experience with new R supervisors for research, once you get past the initial hurdle, I can't stop
1: talking. (laughs) So I think that might be all, Jared. As Jared and Katie said, this was funded through an ERG grant. Thank you. Stay safe. Thanks for your role, your ongoing role in GP supervision. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.